You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York, in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a Bloomberg report about Apple's plans to scale back iPhone production sends the stock down by as much as 4.6%. The company planned to build an extra 6 million phones, but the extra demand never materialized. We'll have the details in a moment. Plus, Amazon devices get a facelift and a good night's rest. The company unveiled a bedside sleep tracker, as well as a new Kindle, updated ring cameras and Echo products. I'll discuss with Amazon's senior VP of devices. And Circle's Jeremy Allaire talks about the latest announcements from their Converge 22 conference, including its new partnership with Robinhood. Bloomberg has learned Apple is backing off plans to increase production of its new iPhones this year. The company had expected a surge in demand, but that hadn't happened, according to sources. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman joins me from L.A. with the details. Mark, what is our latest reporting on what's going on? So for 2022, Apple set out to build and sell through 90 million new iPhone 14 units. That's across the four models, the 14, the 14 Plus, the Pro, and the Pro Max. But recently, they sort of had this extra credit idea, I'll call it, for an extra 6 million phones on top of that 90 million. But like you said, that extra 6 million no longer necessary because of concerns about that extra demand not happening in 2022. I would say that probably has to do with some recession uh, pressures, inflationary pressures as well, that people are experiencing. The iPhone 14 and 14 Plus, not significant upgrades over the 13s, but the Pros, that's where the big upgrades are. That's what people want to buy. So I think people are holding off on buying the phone until they're able to buy that 14 Pro or Pro Max or when it makes sense for them to upgrade to those pricier and, quite frankly, far better versions of the device. Mark, there seems to be some evidence, some data that consumers around the world are going for the higher price point Pro. What have we learned about early demand? Yeah, early demand tells us that the iPhone 14 Pro, and particularly iPhone 14 Pro Max, that's where it's at this year. People want those devices. If you just look at on a year-over-year level, the move from the iPhone 13 to the 14, the non-Pro models, 
extremely minimal. I would say the 13 to the 14, smallest upgrade in the iPhone's history. But pro to pro, very big upgrade. 48 megapixel camera on the back, the dynamic island system that you're showing on the, on the, on the screen right now, uh, the satellite connectivity is available on both models, but some of those video upgrades, those are all on the pro models, and so I think that's what people really want to hold out for. Uh, if you look at the Apple online store, uh, you can see in particular there the shipment delay times for the pro models far longer than the regular models. That's a very good indicator of demand. Also, this is not an exaggeration. You go to an Apple store, there have been lines around the block for days still for the Pro models. You ask people, which phone are you here to, to line up for? You ask 50 people, I would say maybe 48 or 49 of them are there for the Pro phones, not the regular 14. All right, our thanks to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. I want to stick with this story and bring in Forrester Research Vice President Julie Ask. Julie, this is interesting because no matter what the environment, people buy iPhones around the world. What's your read on what Bloomberg reported over, overnight? Yes, yeah, so, thank you. So I think there's a number of factors. So I think the first one is always, you know, we know that Apple's iPhone owners and buyers are more affluent uh, than those of Android. Even if you just look in the U.S. alone, the average household income of an iPhone owner is $88,000 versus 79 for Android. 32% uh, of households that own an iPhone have a household income of more than $100,000 a year. For Android, that's 23%. Uh, and final point there is if you look at households with an income of over $300,000, dollars annually, uh, 3% uh, for the iPhone and only 1% for Android. So I think that's, you know, the top of the list. We know, and there's a lot of data that shows that simply iPhone owners are more affluent uh, than those that are purchasing an Android. I think the second thing that comes into the mix is the upgrade cycle. Uh, last year and this year has been an interesting time because a lot of carriers shut down 3G and they forced an upgrade. So when we look at our data across the United States and Europe, anywhere from 25 to 29 percent of consumers have purchased an iPhone in the past year. And I think it's a really substantial number, especially when you take into account that iPhone represents under 50 percent of share in each of those markets once you get outside of the United States. And then finally, to echo what Mark was saying, you know, when we look at it, we talk to our consumers, 61 percent of consumers expect that a recession is coming and so they are slowing spending we've got 34 percent of u.s online adults saying we are going to spend less on electronics in the upcoming year so there's a little bit of hesitation in the market um, and consumers are pulling back on spending julie we love having you on because you crunch the numbers let's take a step back let's zoom out here a lot of sell siders seem to be saying well i was always modeling 90 million units anyway so what's changed yeah, I think it's it's hard to say, you know, what, you know, the analysts were modeling. I think it's, um, you know, certainly there's always good reasons to think about why they could have grown the market. Um, certainly, you know, for example, one of the things that we know that if 20% of consumers who buy Apple products only buy Apple products. So if they're buying a watch, if they're buying a tablet, if they're signing up for Apple One, they're more likely to be a smartphone owner, you know, an iOS smartphone owner. So, it, you know, it's fair to expect that Apple could have, you know, predicted that they would have converted more Android users uh, this year. And they've also got a very deep lineup that's capable of doing that and competing at lower price points. So uh, again, I don't know what was going on when they did the when they did the forecast, but there's you know, you know, six million is not a big number on top of ninety. You know, it's it's more than ten. You know, it's more than five, but it's not ten percent. It's not a big number. I think when we talk about global technology, the prospects of a recession, we're trying to look for clues, right, of what's happening with the global consumer. What do you see broadly in the smartphone market globally? Are there markets where the consumer is weaker? Are there spending habits that are changing? 
Yes. So I think, you know, certainly when we look at the numbers and we're talking to consumers where you, you know, what concerns you, right? Food is more expensive, you know, rents are up, all right, right? There's quite a few categories, you know, that I would say are certainly more essential than having the latest and greatest smartphone. Um, but again, like, you know, keep in mind, you know, the upgrades, like these phones are amazing, amazing feats of engineering. They're amazing devices, whether it's an iPhone device or it's, you know, one of the latest Android devices. Consumers are hanging on to these devices for, you know, two, three, four years. And so that we saw 29% of consumers in the United States buy an iPhone in the last 12 months is astounding on its own. And so that also could be contributing to a little bit of softer demand at, you know, all of the price points as we go into the end of uh, 2022. All right. Forrester Research Vice President Julie Ask, thank you very much. Coming up, Amazon's ambient intelligence, how the company's looking to a more personalized and proactive future in its devices. Our conversation with Amazon's Dave Limp next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Wednesday, Amazon held its full hardware event where it announced a bunch of new gadgets. I caught up with Dave Lim, Amazon's Senior Vice President for Devices and Services, right after the event and asked about the company's strategy with so much competition in the space. What we're trying to do is build devices and services that uh, mostly focus on the home, although increasingly in the car, that uh, follow the pattern of what we call ambient intelligence, which is the ability for devices to be very, very uh, useful to customers when they're in the foreground and when they need it. But when you're not using it, they kind of disappear in the background. And when we're, do when we're at our best, we're allowing customers to pick their heads up, enjoy the real world, enjoy their families, and let technology help that rather than being you know, absorbed in their phones or out in some metaverse somewhere. 
with inflation such as it is around the world, higher input costs, how conscious a decision was that with pricing to not raise prices with certain product lines? I think we're always trying to, you know, since the very beginning, uh, our first Kindle, we've, we have 15 years ago, we've tried to make our products as affordable as possible. You know, we, uh, our strategy has been the same since the very beginning, which is we want to make money when p- customers use their products, not necessarily when they buy them. And so, uh, we we are obviously looking, always looking at commodity costs, but uh, but part of the ability to pass on that value to customers is that the business is at a scale where we can buy in volume, and and we want to give that value you back to customers wherever possible. You mentioned the Kindle. It's a bit of a throwback, right? The first Amazon device, and you've added a stylus. Interesting products. What's the strategy with that? Do you think that this is going to be a volume seller? Well, Kindle Scribe is, in some ways, it's the Kindle we've always wanted to build. Uh, you know, we have some great Kindles. We just announced some last last uh, two weeks ago that are at $99. But this one, as you mentioned, it's the first Kindle you can write on. And uh, it has a 10.3-inch display that's incredibly high resolution, 300 PPI. But it also has a, a stylus and one that doesn't have a battery. You don't have to sync. It just works. And when you write on uh, Kindle Scribe, it really does feel like you're writing on paper. It's something that's amazing. You kind of have to uh, try it to see it. And, uh, you know, I never try to predict volumes. Uh, What we try to do is build great products and let customers speak for themselves. I I know for sure that I will be buying one of these. You'll be buying one, but around the world, the the consumer is feeling pain. And at the same time, there's evidence that consumers are still spending at the higher end of the market. What are you seeing in the markets that you operate in, in the spending habits of consumers, where they are putting cash or where they're holding back? Yeah, I, uh, obviously, we, uh, our first signal was a couple months ago with Prime Day. We had a, uh, we had a good Prime Day uh, for my part of Amazon's business. Uh, we, uh, uh, I think customers tend to look for value uh, in times when the economy is tougher. It's hard to predict what's going to happen as we go into Q4. There's no question that there is tightening in the economy. Um, But I I think the best thing we can do is get our inputs right and build products that we think customers are going to love, price them, as you mentioned earlier, crisply so that they're affordable. And then, you know, the rest is going to be up to up to the consumer. But uh, uh, I'm an internal optimist, but I have... uh, High-level conviction there's going to be a, a lot of Echoes and Kindles and other products under people's trees this year. The deal with iRobot, I think we got news last week that the FTC has made a second request for additional information. How optimistic are you that that deal gets done and how important is iRobot? Well, obviously, we have to go through the approval cycles around the world. And until we do uh, get through those, we'll continue to operate at arm's length as separate companies. But, you know, I I wouldn't uh, have uh, ever kind of sat down with Colin if we didn't have optimism that we could get the the transaction done. Colin, who's the CEO of uh, iRobot, is the uh, kind of the, the most missionary entrepreneur, one of the most missionary entrepreneurs I've ever met. And I look forward to, once we consummate the transaction, to working with them even closer. You have really expanded the devices offering in recent years. There are so many product lines, product type. We didn't even get onto the new TVs um, and some of the other devices aimed at kids. But all that makes me think about your manufacturing footprint globally now. Let's talk semiconductors. You know, how is supply chain for you? How is manufacturing and how are access to key chips that you need that go into these devices? 
I think we're uh, coming out at the other end of, uh, at least for the products that are under my purview, uh, of, of the worst of the supply chain crisis. I, I don't think it's by any means over. Uh, we still see disruptions in the worldwide transportation network, uh, especially if you're throwing things on ocean. Uh, and uh, certain chipsets are still in shorter dis uh, supply. But some of the more critical components, uh, you know, uh, systems on a chip, the actual processors in our products, uh, the supply looks brighter for them. Uh, when you look at, uh, at display panels for things like tablets and TVs, that supply looks better than it did a year ago. So again, I don't think we're through it, uh, but I can start seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. That was Amazon's Dave Limp. Let's stick with Amazon's product unveiling and bring in Tom Forte of DA Davidson. Tom, a lot of products, some of them are facelifts, right? Upgrades to existing lines, some of them are new. Did any of that move the needle for you? Sure. So when I think about their strategy, I think of them as the low cost or one of the low cost providers of hardware in the consumer electronics space. I think it's about time and I think it should be a very popular product that they're adding a stylus to the Kindle. When I think of their different lines of consumer electronics products, Kindle's probably, probably where we would say Amazon is most dominant. Uh, otherwise, when you think about a lot of their Echo devices, the good news is that Amazon makes a lot of devices that leverage Alexa, but a lot of other consumer electronic companies do too. So I think when you think about the products that are leveraging Alexa, it isn't just what Amazon's doing on the Echo device line, but the fact that so many manufacturers think Sonos, as an example, are making products integrated with Alexa. Uh, that's the important thing there. So that was kind of my initial take on their new hardware offering. And I'm fascinated to Astro, and I'm glad you talked to him about the iRobot acquisition. Right. So what is it about the Roomba that attracted Amazon? And why does it feel like it needed to make an acquisition there rather than extend what it's already doing with the Astro lineup? The timing of this is interesting because we've just had news of a second Prime Day essentially next month. Do you expect consumers right now around the world to rush out and gobble up these Amazon devices? Uh, yes and no. So, so let's start with the second Prime Day in, in one calendar year. So as a longtime student of Amazon, I remember when they had the first Prime Day and it was in July, and the reason was they wanted to test their logistics to see if they were ready for their big sales days, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So in my opinion, having two prime days in calendar 2022 is actually a sign of weakness. It means that they need a sale because their sales are not doing as well as they hoped for. I also think they want to leverage their logistics to get as much of a return on that investment. So do I think investors or consumers rather will gobble up their consumer electronics devices at a second prime day? Uh, generally speaking, they do well with the Amazon devices on prime day. But as it pertains to the sales trends in general on the stock, I'm concerned that they're having two sales in one year. I think that's a negative sign. Tom, I want you to give me an explanation of why we care about Amazon's devices business. They, they price them competitively, right? But it seems to me the idea here is just to bring more people into Prime, more people using Alexa products. They're not actually so focused on making money through the hardware, are they? Yeah, they're definitely the opposite of Apple, uh, where Apple makes the majority of its revenue from its hardware sales. For Amazon, hardware is essentially an enabler. Uh, what can I give a consumer that'll make it easier for them to buy products on Amazon? What can I give a consumer that'll make it easier for them to watch videos uh, on Amazon? So in that regard, uh, not the profit needle mover, certainly that is for Apple, 
but it can have a positive impact on their e-commerce sales right. to the extent that everything they do makes it easier for the consumers to buy products through Amazon. Hey, Tom, really quickly, you were concerned about the mixed reception for Rings of Power. I've been watching Rings of Power. Have the episodes so far changed your mind? Okay, so I'm publishing a note tomorrow where I'm going to talk about how I essentially fell asleep in episodes one, three, and four and haven't <laughs> watched episode five yet. So with a 38% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, I'm very concerned about the uh, billion-dollar investment they've made right. in the property. Tom Forte, harsh critic of DA Davidson, of course. Thank you very much. Elon Musk asked a federal appeals court to throw out the deal he made with the SEC in 2018 over a so-called Twitter sitter. Since 2018, a Tesla lawyer has screened all of Musk's company-related tweets, we believe, after a tweet about taking Tesla private forced the SEC to act. Musk calls the Twitter sitter agreement an illegal effort to muzzle him, adding that it's hindering his freedom of speech. A judge refused Musk's last plea to end the Twitter sitter deal back in April. And... Tesla has added Joe Gabir as a board member. Gabir is the co-founder of Airbnb and last 14 years has helped launch Airbnb's design studio and Airbnb.org, the company's non-profit foundation. He recently stepped back from his full-time role in operations to pursue other ventures. Gabir replaces Larry Ellison on the board. And General Mills, the maker of Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Annie's Box Pastas, is backing food tech startup Grub Market. San Francisco-based Grub Market has raised $120 million in new equity from General Mills and other investors, including Tiger Global, at a $2 billion valuation. The startup offers software and an e-commerce platform connecting farmers and key food suppliers with customers. Grub Market operates all across the US, South America, Asia, Europe and Africa. An IPO could also be on the horizon with Grub Market holding talks with underwriters, Bloomberg has reported. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York. The popular messaging platform WhatsApp is more than just an encrypted messaging app connecting people worldwide. It's become a major part of Wall Street communication. That's why regulators reached settlements with a dozen banks for failing to monitor employees' communications on, on unauthorized messaging apps like WhatsApp. Wall Street has been hit with more than $2 billion of fines in what's become called the WhatsApp investigation. Goldman Sachs, Bank of America and Citigroup were among those penalized. Bloomberg Sridhar Natarajan is covering this story. Let's go back to the beginning. What is the activity and which apps are we talking about here? Again, and that's important because while we call it the WhatsApp probe, it's important that listeners understand that what we're really talking about is something that's dubbed the WhatsApp probe. Effectively, regulators want banks to ensure that they're monitoring all these messaging apps. They are worried about the unauthorized use of these apps. So WhatsApp is one prominent example, but it could be Signal, it could be Telegram, it could be any one of these apps that have gotten pop so popular in recent years. A lot of the communication between bankers and traders, their clients, just inside the firm has gravitated to these right. platforms, but archiving these chats, monitoring these chats and compliance has not kept pace with the growth in technology there. Is this a pandemic story where we're all sort of at home out of the office and communicating with each other in new ways or does it predate that? 
The pandemic is an accelerator for sure, but I think it's more of a technology story. You have just gotten used to the idea that people are just more comfortable using these apps to communicate. Even someone sitting two seats down from you, you're more likely to send them a message rather than pick up the phone and call them or email them. That's why there is so much focus on these apps. And of course, the pandemic played a role because you had a disparate situation where everyone left the offices, the offices emptied out, and everyone is at home. And when you're at home, you're more likely to be more comfortable with the kind of apps you use anywhere when you're outside your usual eight to six schedule. These fines seem big, big numbers. Why so hefty? It's extraordinary. $2 billion. Cast your mind eight years back when Mark Zuckerberg wanted to buy WhatsApp. We were all scratching our heads as to why they would buy something like that for $20 billion. In 2022, now we're talking about a fine that grows as much as $2 billion. That in some ways is truly crazy because the previous highest fine for something like this, which is effectively a record-keeping lapse, was $15 million. One five for Morgan Stanley back in 2006. Now each and every bank, at least the big banks, are coming out there and paying $200 million. This is the kind of fine you play, pay when you find some sort of wrongdoing, when you bring down an insider trading cartel or something like that. But this, honestly, is a reflection of the reality today, which is the Biden administration's approach to regulation, and that's what you're seeing playing out. Some of those fines are somewhat eye-watering, some bigger than others. I guess, the, like you see it on your screen there, those are big institutions, right, that we're talking about that are kind of paying the price for this. I guess the question is, what happens next? What's the reaction? Tell me about the WhatsApp cop. What oh, that, is a WhatsApp cop on Wall Street? That's a mouthful. That, that certainly seems to be the funny byproduct of this saga, but uh, we've created a new compliance role. All the banks that, have, uh, that are part of this settlement have agreed with the SEC and CFTC to install a new compliance official whose role effectively is to make sure that they're archiving and monitoring these communications properly. And we're more than happy to dub that role as the WhatsApp cop. What was the frustrations within the banks themselves? I think, you know, they would argue perhaps this is kind of a commonplace practice, but there's a cautionary tale as well. It is a cautionary tale, and of course you can see the frustration, right? Look at everything that the regulators have put out there. When they talk about the messages they found, they talk about the great volume of messages, but it's not like they unearthed some sort of fraud. It could very well have been everyday communication, could have been about work, but just that a regular everyday communication, whether it's about a new bond deal or something else that's going on, they shifted their platform from an email or an IB that they would normally use to these messaging apps. The regulators' frustrations came through because they can't necessarily monitor it, and they just want to make sure that right. banks are safe and sorry. Right. Well, Bloomberg, Sridhar, Natarajan, thank you very much. The European Union's foreign policy chief is warning of retaliation for any attack on Europe's energy networks. The EU suspects damage to two Nord Stream underwater natural gas pipelines running from Russia to Germany was sabotage and that they will support any investigation. Meanwhile, the CEO of Darktrace, one of the largest cybersecurity firms in Europe, says there is significant demand for business since the Russian war in Ukraine. Here's some of what Poppy Gustafsson told Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie in London. Critical infrastructure is an area that absolutely has to be right at the cutting edge of adopting some cyber principles because they are so, so many businesses rely on their, their products, whether that's energy or other sort of supplies. 
And this isn't something that new that's necessarily come out today. Even with things like sort of Russia and Ukraine early in the year, we have seen significant demand for our products from the critical national infrastructure sector purely for that reason, because they are at heightened risk and there is such a dependence on, the, on their supply to so many other businesses. Which particular areas? Is it utility companies? Is it energy companies? And what are the specific demands that they need, the specific challenges they need addressed? It's all of the above. Just think about how many businesses depend on the services that they supply. So utilities and energy, we have seen heightened demand in, both in terms of Europe and in US. And that's because they're an easy target. If you are operating a business that typically can be reliant on very old legacy systems that have been around for decades, they're not necessarily at the cutting edge of capability. But also, if you are looking to enact your uh, cyber gains and use that for nefarious reasons, there are very high profile target where the consequences can be felt very, very highly, and therefore it makes a sort of ideal victim, if you like. Uh, are attacks. you saying you monitor this, obviously, on a daily, hourly basis? Are you seeing a tick up of attacks emanating from Russia? We're not in the business of attribution necessarily, so we're not necessarily saying it's coming from one nation or the other. But since the invasion of Ukraine, we have seen an uptick in attacks across the critical infrastructure sectors, particularly in Europe and the US. In this environment of higher interest rates, slower growth, recession reserve concerns, are you seeing reluctance from clients and customers? Are you starting to see that ever away? In past, I think, to be honest, we are, as a business, we're still quite a poor indicator of demand more broadly because we are still very much uh, supply constrained rather than demand constrained. So the business grows the quicker that I bring people in. So we're not necessarily a good proxy about what is happening in the market more broadly. But from our perspective, we're still seeing very strong demand for our What about our acquisition costs? Are they inevitably going to be moving higher in this environment? I think you're seeing inflating costs sort of all over, predominantly in terms of, you see that in terms of uh, employee costs and things like that. Okay. Uh, a few months ago, Toma Bravo was, you were in conversations with them, of course, about a potential takeover. It didn't come to pass. Can you give us some, some detail as to why ultimately they walked away? I mean, I have to be sort of fair, I, as you can understand, I'm fairly limited by what I can and can't say. but. What I will say is we've loved being a public company. I mean, there's a whole ton of ideas. Was, it a, pricing, was, it, a pricing, was it a question of pricing or did they find something that they didn't like? I would say, oh, it's, no, these conversations leaked at the very, very earliest stage of engagement with Toma Bravo. That unfortunately became public. And, you know, in September, we said that those conversations had ended. We have a legal obligation to explore any such offers. But, you know, if I was sat where Toma Bravo is, I'd be looking across at the UK thinking, you know, it's a very cheap area to be able to come and potentially do some takeovers do, do, Does the collapse of the pound make you a more attractive target? And are you in conversations with anyone else? I would speculate that if I was on the US side looking over here I'd, at the UK, I would say, yeah, the, the UK does look cheap. But from my perspective and from my business, we're just really prioritising or exploring all of the opportunities that we see ahead of us. And we've got a whole bunch of ideas, a whole bunch of innovation. We had a new product launch over the summer, and we're just really excited to get back to business as usual. That was Dark Trace CEO Poppy Gustafsson at the Bloomberg Tech Summit in London. Coming up, Circle and Robinhood team up to offer its stablecoin to retail traders. We'll discuss with the CEO of Circle next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Time now for our crypto report. Today we have the CEO behind one of the most popular stable coins in circulation. For that, we turn to Bloomberg's con- crypto contributor, Shanali Basak. Shanali. Thank you so much, Ed. And today we have Circle founder and CEO Jeremy Allaire. Thank you so much for joining us because you have this new deal you struck, this partnership with Robinhood. And I'm wondering, you're somebody that already works with so many institutions. What does this do to really add to your base of retail customers? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, yeah, we we announced uh, a broad partnership with Robinhood here today at Converge, our first uh, platform ecosystem conference. We've got thousands of people here in San Francisco, which we're, we're pretty excited about. And, and um, this morning, um, you know, on stage, uh, uh, Robinhood CTO, uh, 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 you know, talked about this. And and what I can say is, you know, Robinhood is an amazing retail investor platform. They have 23 million uh, users. Um, it really is sort of represents uh, the the kind of mainstream user participating in this more democratized financial system. And uh, what we've done with Robinhood is a few things. I think the first is just making USDC one of the digital currencies that people can trade on on Robinhood. They started with uh, some of the, you know, kind of traditional popular cryptocurrencies, but USDC has just become such a critical part of anyone that's operating in the digital asset space, whether you're using exchanges, wallets, DeFi, and so just having that built into Robinhood and their 23 million users is really powerful. The second thing um, really was, you know, they've launched a new wallet, uh, a Web3 wallet, and, you know, they're really trying to bring that huge user base they have into Web3. And, you know, making frictionless, fast, and easy payments is is a core part of what people want to be able to do in Web3 and USDC is a core part of that value proposition and, and, right. and built in part in that wallet. Jeremy, as you think about how core USDC is and the stablecoin ecosystem is when it comes to the, the linkage between the traditional financial system and the crypto world, let's take a quick listen to hear of what Fed Chair Jerome Powell had to say, given that there's so much regulatory attention. Take a listen to, to this soundbite. There's a real need for more appropriate regulation so that uh, as 
as a DeFi expands and starts to touch more and more retail customers and that sort of thing uh, so that appropriate regulation is in place. Now, I'm really curious here, who do you think is going to take the biggest lead here in really stepping in and setting the groundwork for the U.S., and how soon do you expect it? Well, I mean, I think this is a critical issue, and I think there's bipartisan support for this idea that payment stablecoins such as USDC uh, are a critical piece of how the dollar is going to compete on the Internet. And the focus of policymakers, regulators uh, like the Fed and Treasury and others is we need to have a clear set of statutes for dollar stablecoins in the United States, both to manage the risks, but also to make it clear that this is a new model for using dollars on the Internet. And I think that with that is going to come uh, tremendous legitimacy for not just stablecoins, but for the advancement of, of digital assets as a, as a core part of the financial system core part of the financial system, and if you think about what's happening in China and hundreds of millions of accounts when it comes to the digital yuan already, very early to really get behind a central bank digital currency, do you think the U.S. is falling behind? You know, we like to say that the U.S. is already winning the digital currency space race. Dollar digital currencies are the most widely used uh, digital currencies on the Internet today, uh, which says something, which is the preference for the dollar, the power of the open innovation of blockchains, the power of private sector innovation in the space. That's already created a leadership position for the dollar and for the United States. Now what the United States needs to do is codify that. And, and solidify that so that these digital currency dollars like USDC and others that many other firms will likely issue can become uh, the foundation for how financial products and services and payments and commerce are going to work on the Internet. And so mm -hmm. really, this is an opportunity for the U.S. to seize that existing leadership position and strengthen it. Well, we're also coming at this conversation at a time of just tremendous strength in the dollar. And if you look at something that Sam Bankman-Fried tweeted just earlier this week, boy, would the world be thinking differently about crypto price moves if they measured it versus uh, world currency baskets instead of just U.S. dollars. I'm wondering how you interpret that and what that means for currencies around the world in relation to cryptocurrency. I mean, look, it's a, it's a fascinating time from a macro perspective. Um, I'm going to be talking in a few minutes here at Converge with Larry Summers about that macro outlook and about the role of the dollar and what role the dollar is playing, not just in currency markets today, but the role that the dollar is going to play on the Internet. Um, I think right now it, it's a pretty it's a pretty pivotal moment. And um, I think the structure of the international monetary system is at stake. And uh, there's a new kind of competition that's happening in currencies. And I think, you know, payment stable coins and this form of digital currency uh, aligns with these kind of changing macro uh, dynamics. Well, and so I think these, these play together. Give us some more specificity here. What does the future look like in a world where currencies have been kind of all over the place more recently? A lot of people really worry about the value of what they're holding. So what role very specifically does a stable coin play, especially outside of the U.S.? We've we've seen an incredible amount of adoption of dollar digital currencies like USDC all around the world. The demand for being able to transact in the dollar and using it as a medium of exchange on the Internet is very high. I think that says a lot about the strength of the dollar uh, as an international currency. And I think the growth of these networks, the growth of these blockchain networks, the proliferation of more and more of these digital wallets like Robinhood or Coinbase or so many other you know, products that are out there, 
um, are, are, you know, are going to make these kinds of uh, fiat digital currencies even more popular in the world. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a, you know, it's a tremendous opportunity for the United States. Now, a question for you just about Circle itself. Do you have any fundraising plans? What's next for you guys as you grow? And what's the status of going public? Yeah, so um, Circle's in a really strong financial position. Uh, we've been growing uh, pretty rapidly uh, over the past couple of years. You can see that in, in sort of the growth in USDC. The company is more than doubling in size this year, and, and we're, we're in, in the best financial position that we've really ever been in. Um, we are in a registration process with the SEC to become a public company, and we continue to go through that process of, of becoming qualified to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and, and hopefully uh, we'll get there uh, in the near future. What's the competitive landscape here? Do you think that USDC will exceed USDT very soon? Tether in market cap, why do you think that hasn't happened yet? And when will it happen, do you think? Yeah, I don't like to make, you know, time frame predictions or things like that. I think we've always just been very heads down, focused on building something with a lot of trust and transparency, doing it in a regulated environment, partnering with great institutions with great companies to continue to build this out, working with the developer community to grow this. And I think if we continue to do that, the rest uh, the rest of the work kind of gets done. And so we're in the very early stages of the adoption of, of dollar stable coins and technology like this. You know, we think the total addressable market for this kind of technology is M2 money, which is in the tens of trillions of dollars globally. And so it's super early stage. Um, we're just focused on just trying to build infrastructure that works for developers, businesses, people, users all around the world, and we'll just keep, uh, you know, trying to improve that. Jeremy Allaire, that's Circle's founder and CEO on the heels of a new big deal with Robinhood. Thank you so much for your time. Ed, back to you. Thanks, Sonali. Now to the latest with Congress's battle to regulate big tech. Supporters of a landmark bill to restrict internet giants from favoring their own products has a tough road ahead. Now lawmakers are trying to jam the legislation through the brief lame duck period after the elections. Here to discuss is Bloomberg's Emily Birnbaum. Emily, why haven't we voted on this yet? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pledged uh, earlier this year that he would put this legislation on the floor for obviously been months. And that um, he, we're hearing that he simply doesn't think it has the votes. The supporters of the legislation, such as Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar, say they absolutely do have the votes. You just have to put it on the floor to test that. Um, Schumer is uncomfortable with that. He doesn't want to have his people vote ahead of the midterm. So uh, that's why it has uh, gone this long without going to a vote. Emily, I'm reading your story on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com titled Big Tech's Foes Pin Fading Antitrust Hope on Lame Duck Vote. Now, I think I'm right in saying that this final push for legislation was plotted over pretzels and beer. Give me the background. Yeah, so there was an Oktoberfest-themed happy hour a gathering um, last week. Basically, uh, it was activists, um, congressional aides uh, supporting the legislation, FTC Chair Lena Khan, DOJ, antitrust head, 
Jonathan Cantor. So some of the most important people in the Biden administration and in Congress, as well as Elizabeth Warren, um, plotting out how are we going to get this bill across the finish line before the end of the year? Um, it looks likely that the GOP is going to retake the House. Um, the GOP is not going to take up this bill in its current form, especially under uh, potential Speaker Kevin right. McCarthy. So they um, they were just trying to uh, strategize and get together. Well, quickly, Emily, how do they regroup? So are really pushing for this lame duck vote. They think fine, have the midterms pass, and then there's no reason uh, for vulnerable Democrats not to want to take this vote. They're going to spend the next couple of months firming up the whip count um, and getting people on the record saying, I support this legislation right. um, in a last-ditch effort. All right, Bloomberg's Emily Birnbaum, thank you for that. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Thursday, we have Desmond Lim from Workstream to talk employment, particularly with frontline workers. Don't forget, you can check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify, and also on iHeartRadio. This is Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.